Good morning, everyone. My name's Eleanor, and I'll be uh, leading us in the prayer of illumination, and then I'll be reading from the Bible, our second scripture reading. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. As we hear it read and taught, grant us understanding and transform our hearts so that we may see you more clearly, love you more dearly, and follow you more nearly. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Our reading this morning is taken from Psalm 20. You might see in your um, programs there it says Psalm 1. It's actually Psalm 20. If you just head to the middle of your Bible, for those of you, <coughs> pardon me, who aren't too familiar with the Bible, it's right in the middle. It'll open up to Psalms. For the director of music, a Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up <clears throat> and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. Keep that open in front of you. We'll be... Um looking through that psalm over the next little while together. Um, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for extending the invitation. It's always a great pleasure uh, to teach from God's Word, uh, and especially from the psalms, which I think uh, are just so different from every other part of the Scriptures that they get us to think about things differently. They are God's words to us, giving us words to speak back to Him. Uh, and that's the excitement that we have today to see how this particular psalm gives us words to speak to God uh, the way that I want to get into this psalm is to begin by asking a pretty dangerous question. It's dangerous not because the question is dangerous, but because Matt Dodd's in the room. Um, if I was to ask you what form of government we live under, what would you say? I think most of us would say a democracy, right? But you would be wrong. We actually live under a constitutional monarchy. Now, I actually don't know what that is, and so therefore that's why I'm scared, because I feel like Matt Dodd's going to jump up and throw his podcasts at me, and he's going to say, actually, we, we live in a democracy, Matt, it's sort of like this, but whatever it is. But really, what this means for us is that in a democracy, you elect your leader, that's your leader. We actually have a leader above that leader, don't we? It's the king, the king over in Britain. 
Now, the problem that we have, I think, though, is the one I've already demonstrated, which is this. We don't really even understand what a constitutional monarchy is. We sort of know that there's a king over there and he has something to do with us, but, but functionally, we kind of act like we're a democracy. Now, over the last couple of years, um, my wife and I have been watching The Crown on Netflix, uh, and one of the central issues that, that that series explores is the place of the monarchy in the modern world. Uh, they have a question, what's the purpose of it? What's its point? Is it just helping us or is it helping us drag our heels? Do we need to get rid of it to move forward in the world? And that question is especially relevant for the UK, but I think it's just as relevant for us in Australia. You see, King Charles is our head of state, Australia's ultimate authority. But though he has the power to influence our nation, he very rarely uses it. And so the end result for us is that the average Australian largely ignores the king. Now, and we know this is true, don't we? Because last year, the queen died. And we were very sad. She was a very special woman, a great disciple from what we can tell of God. But there was no political upheaval when she died, was there? Nothing changed for us, except one thing, and that's that we call it the king's birthday holiday now, not the queen's birthday holiday. And that's just really terrible. But that, that was the only blip on the radar. Nothing happened because the queen, the king, it didn't matter to us. Now, today's psalm, Psalm 20, deals with a concept, therefore, that is almost entirely foreign to us, that of kingship. You see, the world, our world, has moved on from kings and queens, but the thing that we're going to discover here in this psalm is that God hasn't. And what we view, perhaps, as an outdated and unrepresentative system of government is the very government that God has installed in the world as the structure through which he rules it and the structure through which he achieves his purposes in the world. And so the thing that we need to grasp at the outset is that even though we functionally, physically live in a democracy, constitutional monarchy, whatever you want to call it, spiritually, as Christians, we are subjects in a kingdom, the kingdom of God, whose sovereign ruler and king is Jesus and the question for today, therefore, is this. Do you march with the king? Do you march with the king? That's our question. To help us understand what that question even means, we need to first understand what kingship is as defined by God. And so the way that we're going to do that is we're going to look at the psalm, Psalm 20, and we're going to identify the three major players in the psalm, and then we're going to work out how they relate to one another. Because if we can do that, we can establish a pattern that we can then apply in our own lives as Christians. And we see all three major players there in verse 1. You see it there, it says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. And we actually see three people there, would you believe? The first, obviously, is the Lord. He's named. The second is the king. He's the you. And the third, the ones that sit in the background, the ones that actually sing the psalm to the king, are the king's men. And we're going to go through each one of those in turn and try and work out those relationships. The king, the king's God, the Lord, and then the king's army, his men. So first of all, let's have a look at the king. Now, the biggest mistake you're going to make when you come to this psalm, and it's a mistake that I made many times when I was much younger as a Christian, is that you're going to read this psalm and think that this psalm is talking about you. You'll come across a particular rough patch in your life and you know, you'll do that kind of really suspect Christian discipline of just open the Bible wherever and just read it, hoping that there'll be some sort of comfort directly to you. And you'll read something like, may he remember all your offerings, may he grant you your heart's desires and fulfill all of your plans and you'll feel relieved. What a wonderful thing to hear from God to me. 
And quite naturally, you'll find comfort in those words, but then quite wrongly, you'll assume that the psalm is talking about you. Not true. Now, we'll talk about the real comfort this psalm has to offer you later, but for now, it's important that we nail down the yous and the yours in this psalm. And our first clue is actually there in verse 6. Because you say, how will these requests answer you, protect you? But we don't really get a sense of who that is until we get to verse 6 and we read, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He goes on, he says, he will save him by his right hand. Now the person here explicitly identified is the Lord's anointed. We see it again in verse 9. It says, Lord, save the king. Or your NIVs will say, give victory to the king. So you see here that the king is the one being sung to. Now, that's really interesting to me, because if you look at the very top of your psalm, technically the very first verse, verse zero of the psalm, tells you who wrote it. You know who David is, don't you? He's the king. So here's a king writing a song for his men to sing to him. It seems a bit kind of egomaniacal, right? Like a bit, bit kind of um, edgy, shouldn't have perhaps done that. Now, but what we're going to see as we continue to delve into this psalm is that it becomes increasingly apparent that the king plays a unique and crucial role in the plans of God. And if he's going to do that well, then his people, the king's people, need to understand that. And so he's written this psalm for Israel's instruction, for their encouragement. And who better to write a psalm about the place of the king than the king himself? And so the first thing to take home from this psalm is this. The psalm is not about you. It's about the king. He's the focus of the psalm, and as such, he should be our focus as well. Now, more on that in a little while, but for now, that's the king. That's the first player. Second player of the psalm, the Lord. As we look through the psalm, we see that the Lord is the one who answers and helps and saves the king. Every blessing that Israel, the king's men, pray for their king is brought about by the agency of God. And if you skim your eyes down those first five verses of the psalm, you'll see it. Everything they ask of the king, the king needs the Lord's help, and it's the Lord that is called upon to provide it. That's really significant for us because it tells us something about the relationship between the king and the Lord. The way the king is victorious, the way the king is saved, is only if the Lord comes and does it. Now, be careful here. We don't always assume that God is like a genie, that the king just kind of rubs his lamp and then whatever he wants, it happens. There is a reason that God saves the king and gives him victories. It's because the king plays a special role in God's salvation plan. Now, to understand that role, we actually need to go to another psalm. This is where I'm going to be sneaking. We're going to preach on two psalms today instead of one, okay? We're going to go to Psalm chapter 2. So Psalm 2. So if you've got your Bibles there, just flick back a couple of pages. And we're going to look at Psalm 2. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 in the Bible are actually the two psalms that frame the rest of the psalms and help us understand them. So let's have a look at Psalm 2. And I'll read to you the first three verses. It begins by saying this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, the king, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so what we see here in these verses really is the world map as God sees it. I always get caught on these online quizzes like name the countries of the world and you sit there for like half an hour trying to get Senegal or wherever it is and, and, and you see it and there's 198 countries in the world. But what it tells here is that God sees the world map very differently. There's only two colors, two boundaries. There's Israel, his righteous nation, and then there's the nations, the wicked, the ones in rebellion against him. 
And what this shows us, therefore, is how God sees the world. And it also shows us how God intends to deal with the world. Because he's got his righteous nation who are not in rebellion to him, and then the rest of the nations who are, and he intends to do something about that. And we see in the psalm, if you keep skimming your eyes down to verse 6 of Psalm 2, is that the way he's going to deal with it is through his king. He has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. You see, God promises to his people a final and ultimate victory over all his enemies. A salvation which he says will come through his anointed one. It was through God's chosen king that he would therefore save the nation of Israel. And we see it in verse 7. I'll tell of a decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and here's your key phrase, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This was a really significant promise. Because at the time, Israel was surrounded by nations that didn't just ignore God, but hated God and actively opposed Him. And so here in the world map is the only righteous nation surrounded by enemies. And what God says to them is, the way that you will be saved, the way that I will restore the world and change the world map so that everything is green rather than red, is to send you a king and through that king I will subjugate the nations. You will defeat them, they will be under your feet, and then peace Will be received. And so the salvation of God's king, therefore, his victory was wrapped up in the defeat of the nations. And it is the Lord we see here in Psalm 2, in Psalm 20, that brings it about. So that's what the second player is doing. He is coming alongside his chosen king to give victory to him, to restore the world to a world that obeys the Lord. That's the second player. The third player You've got the king, the Lord, now you have the king's men, his army. So head back over to Psalm 20 and let's have a look. Uh, the first reference we see to these guys is there in verse 5. They're kind of hidden behind the scenes a bit, but then we see them and we say, may we shout for joy over the king's salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. Now we've got this mention of banners, which is interesting. You go down to kind of verse 7 there, you see the mention of chariots and horses, the rising and falling in verse 8. And what we're actually starting to see here is this is a picture of David's army about to go to war. We're at the pre-war rally. The army's gathered, the king's at the front, and they're singing to the king, asking the Lord to give him victory as they march off against the Lord's and the king's enemies. And so we see the psalm is about the king. It's sung to the Lord, asking for his help, but it's sung by the king's men. They're the ones doing the singing. But notice what they ask for. It's not themselves. It's for the king. Now have a look. Let's skim through verse 1. May the Lord answer you. May the Lord protect you. Send you help. Remember all your offerings. Grant your heart's desires. Fulfill all your plans. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. And all of those things summed up there in verse 9 at the end of the psalm. O Lord, save, not me, save the king. Now let me ask you a question. If you're about to go to war, there's a very real possibility that you're about to die. What are you asking for God, uh, asking of God at that point? That you won't die, right? I think it's perfectly natural. That's what I'd be doing. I hope that's what you'd be doing as well. Trust in the Lord. But we have a term for that, don't we? It's self-preservation. We're interested in protecting our own interests. And let's be real. If we were in a war situation, not a bad thing to ask for. But that's not what the king's men ask for. That's not what David teaches them to ask for. 
He asks them to elevate their vision beyond themselves to somebody higher than them, to desire not their own salvation, but the salvation of their king, and hold his well-being above their own. And the reason that they do that is because their fate is inextricably linked to the fate of their sovereign. And you see it there in verse 6. They declare their confidence, I know that the Lord saves his anointed, and then you skim down, you see the result. The anointed is saved, verse 8, and therefore we rise and stand upright. If the king lives, they live. Now having seen that, having understood that, they then ask all of these blessings upon the king, and it makes a heck of a lot of sense, doesn't it? This isn't just blind loyalty, people just reading out the sheet in front of them to go, okay, this is what we've got to say to the king before we go to war. This isn't people who aren't confident in their king. It's a group of people who understand God's plan for his salvation of the world. God's plan and the place that he has for his king and therefore where their own salvation comes from. God grants salvation to the king and through his king, he grants salvation to his people. That's the psalm. That's the picture that we give. And that was their hope. They needed victory and conquest if they were to be saved. Now, here's the thing that gets really complicated. We've got to work out how this applies today because we're obviously not in an army. David's not marching around. Uh, so let's try and do the kind of the, the transposition and, and work out how we can get it into Jesus' land. Now, the thing to understand is that during David's reign, he was constantly at war with his neighbors. Remember that imaginary map that you've got in your mind? You've got Israel green. Everything else is red. And so everybody on the border, he's pushing back, trying to push them away, conquer them. But what happens as we read the Bible and see history advance is that we work out that David isn't the anointed one that God promises. He's the one who writes the psalm. He's the king that is referred to in the psalm, but he never defeats the nations. He kind of holds the line a bit, but, but that's about all he does. Was he the Lord's anointed? Well, yes, he was in that he was a king. But was he the anointed one promised in Psalm 2? No. David is an archetype, he's a pattern, he's he's a paradigm, a pattern after which the final king will bring his final salvation. And what his kingship therefore reveals, and what Psalm 20 reveals to us, is the pattern that we see in the Lord Jesus, the one who the New Testament names as our king. You see, when he comes, the expectation was back then, even in the the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that Jesus would come along and he'd raise up an army. Remember, Rome is inhabiting Israel at that time. And the plan was that he'd get a whole bunch of kind of militia warriors that trying to sharpen their swords and and stuff and they'd throw off Roman rule and they'd rise up and this wonderful conquest would kind of spread out from Israel and conquer Rome and take over the world with the King Jesus at their head. But as we read scriptures, as we see the words from Jesus' own lips, we realize that God has a very different means of achieving his plan. He still intends to defeat the rebels, take the rebellion of the nations off the table, but he does that in a very different way. It's not political. It's not an earthly kingdom. If you remember at his trial, Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this earth. And that means the rules of the game change. And we need to understand this because it means that we will understand what it looks like to march with the king in a very different way to the way we might if we look at it literally. Uh, You see, under David, under the old covenant, salvation came through subjugation. It was geopolitical conquest, Israel versus the nations. And if you take that logic and you put it into a Christian setting, well, what you get is, unfortunately, the history of Christianity. Now, I've been reading a book over the summer. It's one of the other sneaky things I did while I was building cubby houses. Maybe I should have read less and hammered more. But, but this book was the history of Christianity. And the one mistake 
In every century, the Christians kept making and kept making and getting wrong was that they could not get rid of their nationalistic thinking and stop thinking about Christianity as a political movement and instead as something completely other and out of this world. And so what would happen is there would be forced conversions. If you were a part of our Christian nation, you had to be a Christian. There'd be political dominance. It would be Christianity versus the world. There'd be enclaves and people would go from the monasteries. And obviously the worst thing that happened was the Crusades. Political conquest. But that is not what Jesus came to do. He had a different way of dealing with the rebellion of the nations. But this is something that historically Christians have failed to understand. You see, under Jesus, the Psalm 2 king, salvation would not come through subjugation, but would come through suffering. There's the big flip. Salvation, not through subjugation, but through suffering. You see, the means through which the Christ, God's king, would rule the nations was not by subjugating them, but by suffering for them which is why virtually on every church you'll ever come across, you'll see the cross. Because this is the means through which Jesus saves. It's the means through which he achieves his victory. It's the means through which he saves his people. It's the means through which he puts down the rebellion of the nations. Instead of protecting his capital, Jerusalem, the Mount Zion, he marches to it and dies on a cross in it, in the place of those rebels. So that instead of being absolutely hammered, cut down on the battlefield... They have the opportunity, now that he has suffered for them, to come and join him and change the ranks, shift away from being a rebellious nation and instead become one of the king's men. And so what Jesus achieves for us at the cross is not a physical victory over political enemies, but a spiritual victory, not over nations, but over sin, over Satan who works in the hearts of everybody who rebels. And so instead of kind of taking on Russia or Australia or whatever else it is, he actually isolates the issue, which is the human heart. He takes the sin that God is going to judge in every single one of us, not just the nations, but Israel as well. And he does away with it on the cross when the king suffers the judgment of the nations in their place. And now what happens when we look through the cross at the world is it's not righteous nation versus the wicked nations. The whole of the world map is red. And what Jesus does is he offers a free gift of forgiveness and draws out of the world from countries in Israel, the nations, Russia, Australia, China, America, wherever it is, and he brings them out of those places into his own kingdom, out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the sun. And so now it's not just salvation to Israel with the nations with the boot heel on their heads. It's Israel's and the nations coming to the king, receiving salvation not through subjugation, but through suffering. Because that is how the king is victorious. That is how he saves. And we need to know that when we get to the New Testament and work out what it looks like for us to march with the king. And the thing to understand in all of this is this is not just a plan that's going to happen. It has happened. This is one of the key differences, I think, between the psalm as David's people would have sung it and the psalm today as we sing it. There, the victory was hopefully in the future. They prayed for God to give that victory to David so that they could see God's purposes fulfilled. But now today, we see Jesus already victorious. That might seem strange to you, right? Because you look around the world and you see the nations and you see people, even in our own nation, people who hate God and, and, and live in ways that are rebellious against him. 
But this is where the scriptures affirm to us that God has not abandoned his anointed. So let me throw some Bible verses at you so we can see some of these kingship themes kind of pop up. Acts chapter 2, Peter's famous sermon. Now, what does Peter say to the Israelites there in Jerusalem? God did not allow his Holy One to see corruption. Jesus, murdered, crucified on a cross. But what does God do? He raises him from the dead and he exalts him to the right hand of heaven and makes him both Lord and Christ. Here is the King, Lord and Christ over all. The nations have been given to him as his heritage. Ephesians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 says, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And the key thing in that verse is that it is past tense. It has been done. And if you want to hear it from the lips of Jesus, it's Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so what the king's men have prayed for in Psalm 20 has now been granted. The king has won. And that changes how we march with him. So what does it look like? Well, I've got two questions for us this morning. And that'll do us, I think, for today. The first question is this. Are you with the king? Though the context has changed, the key idea that undergirds this psalm remains the same. The king's salvation is your salvation. And so if you would be saved, then you must put your trust in the Lord and in his anointed. And we see it there in our psalm, in Psalm 7. This is what the king's men declare. They say, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, to put that into perspective, back then in that day in the BC world, when David was marching to war, chariots and horses won you battles. If you had more chariots and horses, then you were almost certain to win. So like the, modern, the ancient equivalent of a tank, right? If you had tanks, you could kind of cruise on through. Uh, but the consistent emphasis of Scripture is that it is the Lord that saves. In fact, he actually forbids Israel to accumulate chariots and horses because he wants to show them that it's not going to be the things of man and the things of this world that saves them. It's not going to be those things that achieve his purposes in the world. He's going to do it in such a way that when his king is victorious, it will be clear that it is the Lord that does it. And so he calls on his people and David calls on his men to not trust in the things of the earth, but in his power. And that's a really hard thing to do, don't you think? Because you're expecting the rest of the verse to go like this. Some trust in chariots and horses, and others trust in this imaginary puff daddy in the sky, and they rise and stand upright, and we collapse and fall. But it's the opposite. Some trust in the most technologically advanced things of the day, and they're the ones that suffer. They're the ones that fail. They're the ones that are defeated. And we trust in the Lord, and we're saved. It's almost like sending us to war, but saying you can't use tanks, you can't use satellites, you can't use nuclear weapons. That's the kind of thing that is happening here for David's men. Now, obviously, because we're not thinking politically, we're not thinking, all right, I've got to find my nuclear weapons and, and sell them on eBay because I can't trust in those anymore. Although if you have them, probably best to declare them. That might not end well for you. What God is saying to us is that if our, if our enemy is not political, but the sin in our own hearts... If we need salvation from God's judgment, then what are the things, the things of the earth, the things of man that we're going to be tempted to trust in to save us from that judgment? And they're the usual suspects, and they're the ones that if you're a new Christian, or if you're a Christian for 30, 40 years, you're still going to struggle with. It's moral performance. 
It's trying to prove to God that you're somehow good enough to, to, to be in his, his family, in his kingdom. It's ministry skills. Look at the things that I can do, God, for you. Look how indispensable I am to your kingdom. It's your achievements. Look at the things I've achieved in this world. I've gotten these sorts of marks or, or I've brought this many people to, to, to church. It's your comparison with others. Yeah, I know I'm sinful, but that guy, oh, he is a train wreck. So obviously I'm going to be a lot better than him. Those are the things that we turn to in the sinfulness of our own heart. They're the chariots and the horses. And you know what? They look good on paper, don't they? If you can say, look at me, I've, I've never hated on anybody. I've never looked at pornography. I've never stolen anything. I've always been nice to my neighbors. It makes you feel a bit of a sense of peace, doesn't it? You kind of get an idea, oh, maybe if I turn up before a God, he might think that I've done okay. But I want to say that's chariot thinking, isn't it? And like the enemies of David in Psalm 20, if you trust in those things, you will fall and collapse in the judgment on the last day. The only way to rise and stand upright as one of the king's men or one of the king's women, we want to be inclusive here, is to commit your entire selves to King Jesus. It is his death that pays your penalty, his resurrection that guarantees your life. You can't bring anything to that table. That is where salvation lies and nowhere else. And if you want to see it, if you want to see one of the most beautiful descriptions of where this is true, then head over to Ephesians 1. You have to do this now. You can go later. But Ephesians 1, it begins in verse 3 by saying, let's thank and praise the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who in Christ has given us every spiritual blessing. And as you skim through that passage, you see it all. We're chosen. We're predestined. We're adopted. We're redeemed. We're forgiven. We're given the Lord's riches. We're given knowledge and wisdom and the inclusion in God's plans and an inheritance that will never spoil or fade, made like Christ, ruling with Christ. And the key as you read that passage is to see that every single one of those things is accompanied by the phrase, in Christ. Nothing comes to you apart from him. We read later on in the chapter, in Ephesians chapter 2, that he, Paul, uh, Paul, when he's writing to them, speaks to them and says, you know, you guys who I just told you, you've got every spiritual blessing in Christ. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. And do you want to know what his summary of their situation was at that point? You are without hope and without God in the world. So the point is clear. Outside of Christ Jesus, you have nothing. But if you're with the king, if you're in him, you have everything. So that's the first thing to ask as we look at this psalm. Are you with the king? The second one, I think, follow, follows on quite logically from that. If you are with the king, are you calling others to get with the king too? Are you calling others to get with the king too? Again, let's highlight the one key difference of this psalm. The salvation of the king involved the destruction of the nations when it was David. But now under Jesus, the salvation of the king involves the inclusion of the nations. There is nobody outside the possibility of coming to the king and sharing in his salvation. Now we saw earlier, we saw some Bible verses that showed us that Jesus has been given the victory. He has been given authority to subdue the rebellion of the world. He is already victorious. Even now today, he reigns. And the thing to get is that he could come right now and end it. 
and the kingdom of heaven would become the kingdom of the world and, and the whole thing would kind of merge together and we would return to geopolitical times because Christ would appear and everything would be submitted to him. But what does he do with his authority now as he waits? Well, you see it again in Matthew 28, and hopefully you, this will ring true because this will be a memory verse from all those years ago. What does he say about his authority? How does he use it? He says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, sharpen your swords. No, he does something profoundly different, doesn't he? I am the king of a kingdom. Go and make disciples. Head out into all of the world and call people to join my army who will then go and call other people to join the army because it's when you're with the king that you are saved. And so even though the main battle has been won, Jesus has been resurrected, seated in the heavens. His salvation has not yet found its way to all his people. And so until that happens, the king's men will continue to march. The military, they call it mop-up. The Bible calls it evangelism. And what was a military battle for land in David's time is now a spiritual battle for souls in our lives, in our communities, in the relationships with the people that we know. And what the King Jesus calls us to do is to enter that fight and raise our banner under him. I was reading this, seek, speak, and live for Jesus. There's your banner, literally. It's quite convenient. Thanks for bringing my, my sermon, sermon prop today. That's what he calls you to do. And I reckon of all the things he could call you to do, that's the scariest thing, don't you think? If you were to honestly answer whether or not you're a kingdom person, this is how you check are you evangelizing people? This is where the loyalty to your king will be shown for what it is. Do you march with your king or do you drag your feet? Have you cast off your own personal concerns for those of the king? Because he sacrificed his entire life so that enemies like you would become his friends, the people in his army. And there is nothing he desires more than seeing more people join that band of people. How much do you desire it? How do you respond to opportunities to evangelize? Now, I've got to be careful here, right? Because what we don't know what to do like, is just put the guilt on. Right? Oh, yeah, I feel really guilty and that sort of thing. So I do want to level with you and say there's a tension here. I don't think evangelism will ever be easy because it is calling people to cut away all of their own loyalties and have your loyalties. And so you'll be tempted to go to what's easier, to what's more comfortable, to what takes less time and less energy. And you'll start to rationalize, and I do this too, I'm too busy. I'm already in too many relationships. I can't have another one. It's not my spiritual gift. But to think like that is to devalue God's ultimate purpose for his world, which is to unite all peoples under his chosen king. That is what it is to march with the king, to join him in the great task of evangelizing the nations. And I just want to say, even though that's scary, it doesn't need to be joyless. We have the words of eternal life. If you're a Christian, then you have experienced personally the joy of the forgiveness that Jesus the King wrought for you on the cross. And we have his gospel. We have the gospel of the great and merciful King. We have tasted his salvation and we know that it is sweet. And so here's the comfort of the psalm. The comfort of the psalm is this. It gives us the assurance that if we are with the king, we are saved. And if we march with the king, come what may, even if we suffer, even if we are called to die for that faith, we have nothing to fear 
and nothing to doubt. And so we march and we seek to win souls for the kingdom, calling people to get with the king because we know that Jesus has already won. And so if I could update, dare I, the last verse of the psalm, O Lord, you have saved the king. May you answer us when we call. Let's do that now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have appointed your king on Mount Zion, that he died, that you rose him from the dead, and that he now sits in glory with all authority in heaven and on earth, and he calls us us to march. We ask for your kindness that we will be brave. We ask for your kindness that we will be selfless, calling on you to see your purposes fulfilled in Christ, setting aside our own interests and our own desires to see Christ's interests and desires prevail in the world. We pray for 2023. We pray for Vic Park Presbyterian. We pray that this will be a community that loves the King, that seeks Him, that speaks for Him, that lives for Him. And we pray that through this community, you'll be pleased to bless others and draw more people from the nations under your banners. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.